Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Video on social media recently that I'm sure every parent of young children could easily relate to. It was a video of a mom speaking to the camera and she was describing her morning and all of the ways that she had disappointed her toddler when her child had asked for a banana to eat. It was one of those situations where she just did everything wrong at every turn. Now, it wasn't that she actually did anything wrong, but in her toddler's eyes, she couldn't get anything right. And every parent knows this feeling. I mean, first she picked the wrong banana out of the bunch. And then after she thoroughly apologized for that, you know, egregious mistake, she went back to the bunch and again picked another wrong banana. And so that went on and on for a while. And then she made the critical mistake of beginning to peel the banana. And every parent knows that you have to ask before you peel the banana on your own. And so her kid wanted to do that part himself and that caused all kinds of problems. And then after he tried to peel it himself, he couldn't peel it himself, he failed at it. And so then he gave it back to mom after throwing it on the ground and that made him even more upset. And then she took the banana and she peeled it and she started to slice it into bite-sized pieces for his convenience. But her kid, of course, wanted to hold the entire banana and eat the whole thing on his own. I can do it myself. And so more crying in and on and on the story went. She served it on the wrong color plate. She served it with the wrong drink and the drink was in the wrong sippy cup and on and on and on. And every parent, every parent has had an experience like this because every toddler has had a meltdown like this. Every toddler has had a moment in their life where they lost all control, lost all reason because they aren't old enough to process their thoughts and to process their feelings yet, right? And wise parents understand this. Wise parents don't expect their toddlers, or so I'm told, wise parents, you know. Wise parents don't expect their toddlers to manage their emotions like adults do. And wise parents recognize that those early years, those are the training grounds for learning how to cope with frustration and loss. That's where we learn how to deal with it when we don't get to do things the way we want. But there is no amount of parental training that can teach us to always be happy about how things are going, right? There is no amount of parental training we could receive or that we could dish out that would be able to adequately teach contentment in all circumstances. As we grow up, we all come to the realization that life is full of letdowns. Life is full of disappointments. Life is not like Burger King, where you get it your way right away, right? In fact, nobody, nobody gets it their way all the time. Even if you think about the most power-hungry and domineering characters in history, nobody gets it their way all the time. 
That's just how it is. And so dealing with disappointment is this ongoing struggle. Dealing with disappointment is an ongoing mental and emotional battle that everybody has to fight, but it can also become a spiritual battle. Dealing with disappointment can become a roadblock in your spiritual journey, and it can become one of the battles for you that takes a heavy toll. One of my very favorite books that I've ever read, in fact, I've read this book multiple times since I was in college. It's a book by Philip Yancey, and it's called Disappointment with God. And in the book, he wrestles with some of the tough questions about why God doesn't seem to intervene in this life the way that we often hope or expect. But in the preface to the book, and I think he, he obviously wrote the preface after he had written the rest of the chapters, he went back. And he tells this story about how some of the members of his church, and he's, he's not a pastor, he's, he's, he's a journalist and a writer, but he's a member of a church. And he said some of the members of his church caught wind of the topic that he was writing this book about, disappointment with God, and he said the phone calls started coming in. Just people from his church family who started reaching out to him about it. And he says, after I had begun, I'm quoting here, after I had begun work on this project, I received phone calls from a few people in my church who had heard about it. And they said, <clears throat> is it true that you're writing a book about disappointment with God? If so, I'd like to talk to you. They said, I haven't told anyone before, but my life as a Christian has included times of great disappointment. And then he went on and he, he returned those calls and he set up times to interview a few of those folks, interviewed some of those callers, and he even used that as kind of fodder to help him think through some of the points of his book. He said, I found that for many people, there's a large gap between what they expect of their Christian faith and what they actually experience. From a steady diet of books and sermons and personal testimonies that all promise triumph and success, they learn to expect dramatic evidence of God working in their lives. And if they don't see such evidence, they feel disappointment and betrayal and often guilt. As one woman said, I kept hearing this phrase, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but I found to my dismay that it's unlike any other personal relationship. I never saw God, I never heard God, I didn't feel God, and I didn't experience the most basic ingredients of a relationship. Either there's something wrong with what I was told or, and you know what she's about to say, right? Or there's something wrong with me. Either there's something wrong with what I was told or there's something wrong with me. And then he writes this line. He says, disappointment occurs when the actual experience of something falls short of what we anticipate. Now, that's not a huge surprise to you. You could have worded that similarly yourself. But disappointment happens when your expectations are not met. Disappointment happens when you had an idyllic, idealistic idea in your mind of how something was going to go, and then in reality, it didn't feel like that at all. 
And it's no secret that everybody faces disappointment in their life. In fact, some stories seem so much harder than others. You look at other people's disappointments in their life and you think, boy, I'm glad I haven't gone through that. But then your own story has been hard too. And for people of faith, it can be a real struggle when our life experience, when our life with God experience doesn't live up to our expectations. For people of faith, our pains and our heartaches can evolve into a disappointment with God as we reason to ourselves that God could have or should have done something to prevent the various hardships that we've been through. I got to tell you, I've known a number of people in my life who have come to a point where they've given up on their faith in God. And sometimes, sometimes those stories, sometimes that walking away happened because of some precipitating event. Sometimes it happened because of a, a steady intellectual argument that had been building against concepts that are involved in faith. Some people that say, I just can't believe that the resurrection happened or something like that. But more often than not, more often than not, when I've seen somebody walk away from faith in God, it seems like it's happened because of a slow burn of disappointment. It's happened progressively over time, and it's been connected to being disappointed in how things were turning out for them spiritually. When circumstances fall short of expectations, it's easy for us to slip into thinking, maybe God's not on our side. Maybe God's not listening. Maybe God's not there. Maybe God's not real. And so today, today I want to get you thinking about how you personally deal with disappointment in your life. I want to get you reflecting today about how you wrestle with the disappointments that come your way. What does it do to your soul when dark days come and when things don't turn out as you'd hoped? Because I believe that wrestling with this question is not only an inevitable part of the spiritual journey for most people, it's part of the journey that virtually everybody is going to have to come up against this question and decide how they're going to reflect and react to it. But in addition to that, and this is good news, I want to tell you, I think wrestling with this question is an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth. In fact, I want to tell you that there is stronger faith that's possible on the backside of this question. That once we have wrestled with this question, once we have spent time reflecting on the promises and the character of God and thought through where God is in our darkest days, there is actually a faith possible on the other side that's stronger and deeper and more meaningful than the faith we had before we asked ourselves this question. And so I want to invite you into this. And as a conversation partner today, we're going to take a look at a short passage from the Bible in the New Testament book of Philippians. Of course, you can join us using your own Bible or your app. We're going to put these verses up here on the screen this morning. But I want you to know Philippians, like so many of the other passages that we study around here, Philippians is a letter. It was written by a preacher, written by a missionary named Paul almost 2,000 years ago. And Paul was writing this letter 
to some Christian friends who made up this little bitty church family in the city of Philippi, which is in Greece. In fact, this is cool trivia history. This may come up in a game for you sometime. The Philippian church was the very first church planted on the continent of Europe that we're aware of, okay? So this is a pretty incredible place that's on the border of Christianity at that time. It's on the frontier of where Christianity had been growing. And Paul had traveled to Philippi, traveled from Asia to Greece into Europe. He had traveled there after he had had a dream about somebody from that region asking him, saying, Paul, come to Philippi. We need your help. Come to the region of Macedonia. We need you to teach us about what you know. And so when he arrived, he quickly found people who were eager to learn about God. And after he got that little church started in Philippi, this first church in Europe, he went on to spread the good news in other places. He kept proceeding west, moving further along the Mediterranean coast in the southern European area. But he always kept in touch with his friends back in Philippi, his Philippian friends, and they did that by writing letters to one another. Now, one of the things that's unique, though, about this letter is that Paul wrote this letter from prison. He got in trouble along the way. Now, he didn't do anything that you and I would have thought of as a crime, but he didn't, ha he didn't live in a time and a place with the same rule of law as you and I live. He didn't live in a place where he was considered innocent until proven guilty. He lived in a region where he was in prison because powerful people wanted him to be in prison because he was in their way. And so Paul's friends in Philippi heard the report about Paul being imprisoned. We suspect it may have been in Rome. We don't know exactly where he was in prison at this time, but somewhere he's in prison. His friends back in Philippi hear about it and they're worried about him. And so, I mean, this is their founding pastor. This is the person that taught them about Jesus, introduced them to Jesus for the very first time. And they're very concerned, you know, they're worried. And so they're, they're so concerned that they take up a collection of money and they send a messenger, one of their own guys, a guy, a guy named Epaphroditus, and they have him travel to go and visit Paul in prison and see what he can do to try to help tend to Paul's needs. And Paul knows that these sweet people are so concerned about him. He knows that they're worried. And so while Epaphroditus is there visiting them, him, he sits down and he pens this letter. And in his letter, he talks about how great he's doing. He talks about how awesome things are. He talks about how they should be joyful and be glad because of all of the great things that are happening to him while he's in prison. Now, take just a second and imagine for yourself what your letter from prison would sound like. Take a second. Now, we're not talking about a modern day prison with like beds and toilets and stuff. Like we're talking about a dungeon kind of place, right? And he's talking about how great things are. Think about what your letter would sound like. Y'all got to get me out of here, you know? I mean, think of it. You get one phone call. Who are you going to call and what are you going to tell them? You wouldn't, have met, you wouldn't believe how great this place is. This is what Paul sounds like. He says, while I've been here, since I've been here in the prison, all of the guards around here have come to know about Jesus. In fact, I'm convinced that's the whole reason I'm here. And he says, in fact, the local church, the church that was founded here in the city where I'm imprisoned, 
they've been so encouraged. They're doing better ministry than ever before just because they're hearing my story and they're hearing about people from the jail that are coming to faith. They all, the, the local Christians are, are doing ministry with more boldness and more courage than ever before. But I want to say thank you. And so at the end of the letter, he mentions the monetary gift that they sent from Philippi. Philippians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 10, here's what he says. He says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I mean, you can hear his heart. He's so grateful to have friends like this who would, you know, just at a moment's notice, put aside some of their own needs and send resources across all the miles, across the sea, across all of the distance to be able to help him. He says, I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know that you have always been concerned for me, but you haven't always had the opportunity. You haven't always had the chance to help me like you did right here. And this is Paul's way of saying, thank you. I am so proud of you for your loving concern. I admire, I appreciate, I, I, I acknowledge the Christ-likeness of your generosity. But then he says, truth is, I didn't really need the help. And he's about to teach them. One of the great gifts of God that Paul himself had received one of the great gifts of God that's available to all Christians. And in verse 11, he says, not that I was ever in need. All right? Now remember, they took up a special monetary collection. They funded Epaphroditus' trip to Rome or wherever it is that Paul's in prison. They went to a lot of trouble, and they made a lot of sacrifice to send this gift to take care of Paul. And he says, thank you so much. I feel your heart. I feel your love. I know what's behind this gift, but it's not that I was ever in need, he says. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. When's the last time you heard somebody with an attitude like that? We don't live in a culture of contentment. We live in a culture of craving. We live in a culture of accumulation. We live in a culture where you can cut corners to try to get ahead. I read a news piece recently about a rich uh, it was a, a whole story about rich people who get caught shoplifting. And there were the, the headline, the banner story was about a wealthy attorney in Florida who paid $8 million in 2019 to purchase his own private island, okay, in the Florida Keys. And then a week later, a week after making that purchase, he was arrested for petty larceny because he stole two coffee makers from a, a Kmart in Key West. And it sounds absurd. It sounds silly to think that a person with that kind of resource, that kind of money could put themselves in that kind of position, but I think he's not that much different than the rest of us. In 2018, Harvard Business School interviewed 4,000 millionaires in the United States and asked them three simple questions. They said, tell us about how much money you currently have Tell us about how happy you are on a scale of 1 to 10. And tell us about how much money you would have to have to get to a 10 on the happiness scale. And the most common response among the 4,000 millionaires they interviewed was about 10 times what I currently have. 
about 10 times more resource than I currently have. That's what it would take for me to be happy. In fact, only 13% of the 4,000 millionaires responded that they already had enough. Only 13%. And when we think about being content, most of us think about what it would require to get there. When we think about contentment, most of us think about changing certain circumstances and realities in our lives. If only I could have a little bit more. If only I could have this car. If only I could have this job. If only I could have this family. If only I could be married. If only I could be healed. Whatever it was, we work on things outside of us to make us happy on the inside. We try to change the externals so that on the inside we can be satisfied. Our commercialized instant gratification culture tells us that we can achieve contentment by changing our outward circumstances. But here's Paul sitting in prison, and he's trying to write this letter. Can you imagine how annoying it is to try to write a letter when you got shackles that are chaining you to the wall and like you can't reach the far side of the paper, you know? I mean, he's in a mess. He's in a bind. He's in an ugly spot. It's a wonder they let Epaphroditus in there. I don't know if Epaphroditus had to bring a candle so Paul could see as he was writing this letter, but he's writing this letter and he says, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. And then he goes on and he explains some more in verse 12. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing and I know how to live with everything. He says, I've learned the secret. Pay attention to that. I've learned the secret as if to say, not everybody knows this. Not everybody's aware. Not everybody's heard. But he says, I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty one, whether I have plenty or whether I have little. And when you think of it, he sounds a little bit extreme, right? It reminds me maybe of one of those survivalist kind of people that you see on TV. Somebody like Bear Grylls, you know, that survival expert former like, you know, British Navy SEAL or whatever it is that they have. You know, this is a guy who knows how to, sub, you know, I mean, he can just live forever outside in the desert, you know, with just a pocket knife. I mean, he, you know, he knows how to subsist on moisture from his own sweat and he can eat beetles and caterpillars and all of that kind of stuff. He's like, I've learned the secret of getting by. You don't have to give me much. I can take care of myself. No matter what situation Bear Grylls runs into, he always knows how to get out alive and well-nourished. It's like a modern-day MacGyver kind of thing, you know? Even with no resources but the clothes on his back, he knows all the secrets of how to survive in a harsh situation. And I think Paul sounds a little bit like that. He says, I've learned the secret of how to live in every situation. And he's about to tell you what the secret is. It's an opportunity for us to lean in. We may want to take notes. We may want to highlight in our Bible here, but I need to caution you because the verse that he's about to share, the statement he's about to make, the sentence we're about to read, if you highlight it by itself, you're going to find that this is one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in all of Scripture. This is a verse that sometimes I've seen players paint it on their faces for a football game or on a poster out in the stands. It's a verse that kind of implies God loves us, so we're going to be victorious, as if God has this favorite 
college team or something that he wants to send to the playoffs, you know? Some of you think God does have a favorite college team that he wants to send to the playoffs. I, I hope you thought it was the Georgia Bulldogs or else we got some bigger problems. But this verse says, verse, Philippians 4.13, this is Paul telling us the secret. And he says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, if you read this verse by itself, if you, haven't, if you hadn't listened to any of the rest of the previous verses or the explanations that I've tried to offer, if you just went and you just lifted this one statement, this one sentence out of its context, out of the letter, and you don't consider the story of Paul's struggle, you don't know the background, if you just read this one sentence, it reads like a blank check. It reads like a blank check promise for whatever your heart desires. You want the promotion? Philippians 4.13. You want to win the game? Philippians 4.13. You want to find a spouse? I can do everything through Christ. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> He's not delusional. He's not being released from prison. He's stuck. He's not moving forward. He's not trying to tell you, I can break these chains through Christ who gives me strength. That's not what this statement is about. And so when he says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, it's a statement about contentment. It's not about your dreams coming true. It's not about your goals being met. It's about being joyful and satisfied and steadfast even when life is hard. It's a statement about being content when your circumstances seem impossible. This is not a statement. It's not a verse about winning the football game. This verse is more appropriately about how you respond when you lose the football game. This is a verse that's more about what happens when you get injured for the season. When you get knocked out and the trainer says, you're not going to get to play again. This verse is about what happens when you fail to make the team. This verse is not about getting the new job or the new house or the new outfit or the new spouse. It's about finding the satisfaction in the job that you already have and the house that you already live in and the wardrobe that's already hanging in your closet and the relationships that you already have. This is not a verse about being empowered to change your circumstances. It's a verse about relying on God for the strength to be content in the midst of the circumstances that you can't change. I said that too fast. This is not a verse about being empowered to change your circumstances. Because if so, Paul might have said, yeah, this prison's great, but actually, I think I could do this ministry from outside. This is not that verse. Instead, this is a verse about relying on God's strength to face the circumstances that you cannot change. This is the secret. This is the secret that Paul had learned. And it's the promise of God for the people of God. You know, last week on Easter Sunday, we wrapped up a series of messages here at Heritage where for weeks we've been talking about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can go back and you can hear those messages on our website. I'd be thrilled for you to listen to those. 
But throughout that series, throughout all those messages, we kept coming back to evidence that the death of Jesus didn't happen because God wanted to punish somebody. The death of Jesus happened because God wanted to save somebody. Okay? Time and time again, that was the theme we kept coming back to. We were leaning into this conviction that God identifies with us, cares for us, relates to us, that God is with us. And so as we face the unforeseen and the unfortunate circumstances in our lives, sometimes we start to doubt God's proximity and God's provision. And the dark days show up and the clouds roll in and the pain gets intense. And it's really easy in moments like that to start to feel isolated and forgotten. It's really easy. You know the feeling. It's really easy in moments like that to feel like we're all alone. But Paul who himself had faced some pretty grim circumstances, says it's possible. And I, he's leaning in to tell you this secret. It's possible, he says, it's possible to find contentment even in the dark. It's possible to find contentment even in the dark. And it's a secret that you can learn. And so we want to ask Paul, how did you learn the secret? Who told you? Where'd you find this stuff out? Paul, if this is the big secret, where'd this come from? And the secret, if you study Paul's story, is that Paul had already been through so much hard stuff in his life that he knew he was convicted, convinced, absolutely sure that God was the only reason that he had survived. Paul had learned through a lifetime of frightening circumstances that God can be trusted. In fact, there was a time, the Philippians, the people he's writing this letter to, they would remember this story. There was a time when Paul was thrown in jail overnight in Philippi. Right there. It's, in, it's recorded in Acts chapter 16. You can read it later on your own. And you would think that at a moment like that where he's been thrown in jail on a foreign continent where he's never visited before, you would think that Paul would be at rock bottom. But he spent that entire night singing songs of praise to God. And at the end of the night, he saw God miraculously bust him out of jail. Paul had been threatened. Paul had been persecuted. Paul had been tired and hungry and cold. He'd been arrested. He'd been tortured. He'd been lied about. People had borne false witness against him in, you know, in front of the authorities. He'd been shipwrecked. Paul had been snake bit. I mean, that's enough for most of us, right? Paul had been snake bit with no medical attention available. And if you were to listen, if you were just sit around for a few minutes and let Paul tell you a few stories of some of the stuff that he had been through in his life, the very first thing that would come to mind for you, you would think, this guy should be dead. There's, how is this guy even here to tell me this stuff? He should be dead by now. And Paul would say, you're exactly right. Paul would say, you're exactly right. I should be dead by now. There, there's no other explanation except that by the grace of God and for the sake of the mission of God, 
I keep on going. By the grace of God and for the sake of the mission of God, I keep on going. And here's the secret. The secret that Paul learned after all of those experiences, all of the pain, all of the fear, all of the long nights, the secret that Paul figured out through his entire experience in his adult life with God was that contentment comes when you begin to recognize Jesus as the source of your strength rather than the cause of your problems. Contentment comes when you begin to recognize Jesus as the source of your strength rather than the cause of your problems. And this is where we get tripped up. This is where this becomes a spiritual battle for us, a demoralizing spiritual moment for us where we, in this moment of pain, darkness, isolation, loneliness, in those moments where we aren't sure where the road is heading, we want to scream at the heavens and say, God, where are you? God, what's happening? God, why is this happening to me? Where are you? And here's God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I'm right here with you. I'm right here. In fact, the only way you're going to get through this is, me, is with me right here. I'm the only reason that you're able to stand at this moment. And we think to ourselves, I can't carry this heavy weight. I can't do it. I can't, I can't carry the weight that's on my back. And God's saying, the fact that I'm here is the only reason you've been able to carry it so far. The fact that I'm here with you, the fact that I have always cared, that I have always loved, that I have always walked beside you, the fact that I'm here is the only reason that you even have the breath to complain. One Bible teacher said, the person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. Person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. But there's another way to look at it. And here's Paul. I mean, just imagine. Shackles on his wrists. Shackles on his legs. And he says to you, I'm doing great. Things are going swimmingly in here. Paul, are you serious? You look terrible. You look hungry. You look like you hadn't had a shower in months. He says, I know. I know all that stuff. But I tell you what. I can remember when it was worse than this. He says, I can remember that night when the ship broke apart and I was floating just holding on to that driftwood in the middle of the night in the Mediterranean Sea and I thought, I can't do this. I can't carry this weight. And there was God tapping me on the shoulder saying, I'm right, I'm right here. That very same night I got snake bit. And I thought, well, I've never seen anybody survive this. And then I did. And he thought, I, I can remember that night in Philippi in the jail. I can remember how hopeless that felt. 
but I can remember being motivated by the Spirit to sing anyway. And by the end of the night, the whole story had changed. And he's looking at you, you, his Christian friends, just like the ones in Philippi. And he's saying, remember? Remember that night? Remember the first time you read Acts 16 and you thought, what? Broke out of prison? He didn't do anything. He was just singing. Busted out. He says, remember? Remember the story? Remember the story of my shipwreck? Remember the story of my imprisonment? Remember the story of all of the times that they drove me out of town? Remember the times they threatened my life? He says, remember? And then he says, remember your story too. Remember the moments when you weren't sure that you were up to the task? Remember the moments when you weren't sure how you were going to have enough to make it to the end of the month? Remember the moments when you thought you were going to be lonely forever? Remember the moments when you thought this pain is never going to get any better? Remember the moments when you were terrified? He says, remember your story too. Because if you can remember that story, if you can remember the story of the moments when you thought this cannot possibly be rescued, this cannot possibly re be redeemed, this can't go on. If you can remember that story and how God brought you through it anyway, he says, that's the secret. That's the secret of being content in any and every situation because you'll begin to recognize Jesus as the source of your strength you'll begin to know that it was God that's been carrying you this whole time. You'll begin to know that God is not the reason that you're in this mess. God's the reason you're making it through this mess. And that makes all the difference.